everybody, my name is Megan Barbier and me and my husband Cody Barbier are so excited to come to you today with Kamal to be preaching this word. So before we start, I would love to start with a uh, word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, God. We thank you for loving us, Lord. We thank you for giving your son as a sacrifice. We just pray that this word would um, just touch lives today and transform lives and that we would just know you and have a relationship with you, God. We just praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been covering Acts 2 in this series. Um, today, we are going to focus on Acts 2, 22 through 36. But in the previous um, two weeks, Emanisi covered Pentecost. That's where Jesus was resurrected and came back. And he told his disciples um, to wait in the upper room. And they waited there and the Holy Spirit came and descended on all of the people who were there. And they spoke in tongues. Last week, Cephas helped us understand Peter's sermon to the people explaining exactly what happened in that upper room for those that may not have been there. Can you imagine all of a sudden hearing people speak your native language and you've never heard that person speak that before? They didn't know it five minutes ago. That's what they were seeing at that time. And Peter had to explain to them that no, they're not drunk, that they actually had the Holy Spirit come upon them and he gave them new languages that they did not know before and that he gave them powers that they didn't have, a boldness that they didn't have, a boldness Peter himself did not have. So I'm going to go ahead and read Acts 2, 22 to 23, and then I'm going to break it down. So fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God, by, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of a wicked man, men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So in verses, verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Peter, this man who, like we said previously, was not claiming Christ. He was denying Christ. He denied Christ three times. And now, all of a sudden, with the Holy Spirit, here he comes. He's not only claiming Christ, but he's preaching Christ. Can you believe the transformation? And that's the Holy Spirit that we have today as well, a boldness that comes upon us. So he was truly a man. Jesus was truly a man, yet God is still giving Jesus the credit for supernatural works, which were defined by miracles, signs, and wonders. Miracles are actually powers, literally powers. Their nature is a, is a demonstration of the power of God. Wonders, their effect being to arouse astonishment. I know you know the word wonderful means wow, great, that's incredible. Signs, their purpose being to embody or signify spiritual truth. Some of those, an example of some of those is feeding the 500. It's when Jesus healed the blind man and when Jesus walked on water. Can you imagine sitting at the coast of Mombasa, just, you know, drinking a little iced tea, watching your children play in the sand, and all of a sudden you see a man walking on water. 
That is incredible, amazing, astonishing. But Jesus actually did that. The purpose of this was to point us to who Jesus is and that he was the fulfillment of those prophecies. They weren't just to show off, but to prove the Hebrews that Jesus is who he claims to be. So God did this through Jesus, and you know this because he did not do them in secret, but you saw him do these things. That's what Peter is saying to the Hebrews. You know, when we do something in secret, like if I turn around and I do this trick and say, ta-da, you don't know what I did behind my back, so you won't really believe me. But if I do a trick right in front of you, how can you deny it? Because you saw me do it. And that is what... Peter is saying, you saw these true miracles. You saw them happen in front of your eyes. How can you not believe it? In verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Peter describes Jesus as being killed in two different ways. Set up by God's purpose and foreknowledge. And two, because... The Jews, with the help of wicked men, the Romans, had put him to death by nailing him on the cross. So although Judas is the one who ultimately led them to Jesus, it was, this was God's plan all along. He knew that Jesus was put on this earth. This would be the outcome. And through the death of his sole heir, that we and all of the Hebrew people would have a place in his kingdom. This was not a surprise to God. He knew he had already decided that this was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen. But he believed that the sacrifice of Jesus's life was worth the relationship of everyone that he gave his life to. And in case you didn't know that, that is you. It's me. It's all of the people who are seeing this or watching me right now, and even all of those people who are in the unreached people groups that we have committed to reaching this year at One Tribe. So this one thing, the death of Jesus, was caused by two things at the same time, both the purpose of God and the wickedness of men. We know that although the Romans put Jesus on that cross, the Hebrews were not innocent, and neither are we today. That the sins that because we are sinful people, there was a need for a sacrifice. That if we were perfect, just like Jesus, and did not ever sin, there would be no need, no need for Jesus to give his life. But in reality, we know that that is not true. Our sins, the sins that we commit today, the sins you committed yesterday, today, tomorrow, and for until you pass away, those sins were hanging on the cross. That same cross that Jesus died on, your sins were up there with him even before you were born, even before your grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were born. Jesus knew, God knew what sins you were going to commit. And even then he said, it is okay. It is worth it. So there's nothing that you can do that Jesus didn't die for. God knew before you were ever created what you were going to do with that horrible sin that you face every day, something that you maybe have been fighting and fighting to get over and just cannot overcome this sin. I have a secret to tell you. God knew before you were created, he knew. And he still allowed Jesus to die for you. 
In Luke 14, Jesus tells his disciples that they have to count the cost for following him. If that means losing their friends, losing their family, losing their jobs, whatever that is, they have to count the cost. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And God counted the cost. When he sent Jesus to this earth, he counted the cost and he decided that your life was worth it. For you to be able to come and have a relationship with God, it was worth Jesus's life. You are worth it. God sees you. God loves you. And there's nothing that you can do that God won't forgive. Hey guys, thank you to my wonderful wife, Megan, for the first part of this sermon. Uh, I'm going to be taking you into the second part. My name is Cody, and uh, we're going to be going to the 24th verse of chapter 2 in Acts. Um, Although the Jews and the Romans conspired to kill Jesus, we will see in a moment that uh, uh, what became of it. Verse 24 says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he was at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Side note for a minute, your translation may say something like hell or Hades in this verse and in verse 31. Don't get hung up on the terminology. The NIV, which translates this as realm of the dead, is correct for our understanding. It could also be translated as something like the grave. It is this state after death, uh, but before final judgment. Let's continue on. It says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy in your, with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here with us to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath, that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay." God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. In the previous verses, Peter accuses his audience of conspiring to kill Jesus. Although they were complicit in Jesus' death, it was ultimately ordained by God for salvation of mankind. This was carried out by human hands, but what Peter emphasizes in this next part is important for them to realize and for us to realize. God raised Jesus from the dead. Now remember who Peter is preaching to. There are many implications to what he's saying here. Mainly that he's making a messianic statement. You see, the Jews were looking for Messiah to come and to save them from the oppressive Roman Empire. But how could someone who died on a cross be the Messiah. Literally, the Old Testament states that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hanged and died from a wooden cross. So in the mind of the Jews, Jesus was accursed. This is where Peter quotes Psalm 16 to show that the Messiah would rise from the dead and was not cursed, but it was actually part of God's plan. 
At this time in history, life after death was still being debated. You see, the two main schools of thought, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had different views on resurrection. It was only the, the Pharisees who believed in, in the resurrection. I want to take you back to a time whenever I was a child. I have this vivid memory from, uh, from one day at the lake. It was my first time to ride a jet ski. And I remember almost everything about that trip, where we stayed, uh, the water sports, and even falling off of that jet ski. But whenever I relayed this story to Megan, I told her that I was about 10 or 11 years old. Interestingly enough, my grandmother found the home video from that trip. What didn't make sense, however, was that according to the timestamp, I was five years old at that trip. For years, I had convinced myself that I was 10 whenever I was actually five. How could I make such a crucial mistake? Memories are problematic at times. There's a psychological term for certain memory loss called motivated forgetting theory. It suggests that people forget things because they either do not want to remember them or for another particular reason. Painful and disturbing memories are made unconscious and very difficult to retrieve. The Israelites here were having a case of selective memory. Not only were the Israelites oblivious to their own scriptural teachings, but they could not accept the resurrection of Christ. Peter reminds them twice of David's prophecy, but he doesn't stop there. No, if they were unconvinced by the words of David... Maybe they would agree to this next statement that Peter makes. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. See, Paul in 1 Corinthians states that 500 people witnessed the resurrection of Christ at once. This is not to say that they were the only ones that saw it. No, there were apostles and other people along the way who Witness the resurrection of Christ. But isn't it the same in 2021? We can all point fingers and say, if I was there at that time, I would have done something differently. But the fact is that we rationalize Jesus's death on a daily basis by trusting in our own good works to cover our faults, saying that Jesus never really needed to die. And we deny His resurrection from the dead by focusing on our hustling in this life and yet forgetting to prepare for the life to come. Why do we trust in our own hopes and, our, and, and abilities? And it's because of the implications. The implication is that if Jesus did die and was raised from the dead, there's something out there that's greater than us, and I will have to submit to it. If he did die and was raised from the dead, then we can't trust in our own good works and in our own accomplishments. But likewise, if God did raise Jesus from the dead, then we who are in Christ have hope to be raised with him in the age to come. So you've just heard from Megan and uh, from Cody about what Peter was saying to these people after they'd witnessed all this miraculous uh, use of language, all these languages being spoken. And he's explained to them that, first of all, Jesus was killed. 
And then secondly, he rose from the dead. So these are astonishing things. And he goes on in chaps, uh, chap, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 33 to say, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So this is, this is a really a very powerful thing that he makes reference to, to the Psalms, Psalms 110 verse 1. And he talks about how it is that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. He's been exalted tremendously. And those amongst the crowd who were Jews would understand that the way that they actually saw God, the way that they, they, they viewed God, they wouldn't even utter his name. That's how much reverence they had about who God was. In fact, when Jesus was walking around talking and so on, he'd very often reference God saying Baba, what we'd say in Kenya, Baba or Abba, very intimately like dad. And, and for them, this was really like blasphemous. They hated to hear that. And so to hear now that references made to this psalm, that Jesus has now been exalted and he's been, he's been seated at the right hand of God. And the right hand of God, the term in Latin is <clears throat> dexteri domini. And this means really as a word domini would imply, we could we're related to dom dominion or dominance. It's the right hand. That's what really represents the power that we have in our physical bodies is our right hands, regardless of whether you're left or right handed. And so here the implication is that all the power of God has now been given to Jesus Christ. This man who you saw, who walked around with us, who was flesh and blood, just like us, and trying to connect this with what they knew and what they understood must have been really, really difficult. And, it, and even today, thinking about it 2,000 years later, I'm reminded of a time when, um, a long time ago, back at university, we had this very famous person, Carl Sagan, a cosmologist, a physicist, come and speak to us uh, in the US. And he gave this speech about the universe and really just describing uh, the beauty of, of the universe and all the, the wonders of physics. And at the time, I was a, a young graduate student and I, and I myself had been studying a lot about God, but I wasn't Christian, actually. I was a, a new ager, so I, but I still did believe that there was God. And so I was really determined to challenge him. So I jumped up and I asked the first question and I said, um, you know, pretty much, do you believe in God? I really botched the question. In fact, the way that I presented it was all upside down. And, and he, he really took advantage of that and kind of ridiculed me, but that was okay. And he essence, in essence, he said that there, there is no God. But one of the things that, um, the reason why I bring up Carl Sagan is because one of the things that he said is that if you look at, or you count all the sand particles on all the beaches on all the earth, in all the earth, all the beaches. And I was at the coast recently with my kids playing. You know, you pick up some sand, this fine sand. Imagine trying to even count the particles in one handful. There's no way. So if you take all those particles of all the beaches on all the earth and count them, that the number of stars in the universe significantly exceeds that. That's how big this universe is. So I'm trying to bring some kind of a perspective on who this God is and where Jesus seated at his right hand with all that power and all the universe that we see is only probably a small fraction of who God is and what his power is. All that power now placed in Jesus Christ. And this, for the people to understand, must have been very, very difficult. This particular scripture, um, uh, Psalms 110, as I was preparing to give this sermon, um, is it says in the internet, I found that it's actually the most quoted scripture within the scripture. 
So scriptures often make reference to other scriptures. This one apparently is the one most quoted. And I'll, I'll now read from Matthew 22, verse 41, where Jesus himself made reference to it. So Jesus is sitting, he knows who he is, obviously. And he's talking to these Pharisees who are full of doubt and trying to trap him. And he throws, he baits them himself. And he says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what do you think about the Christ? And of course they knew that there was a Messiah coming. So, you know, whose son is he? And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how then is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So this is like trying to bring into perspective for those people at that time who the Christ really is. And he, remember, had said to them that he was a Christ. And in the book of Hebrews, there's very many references as well to the same scripture. And what, what, uh, uh, what Peter has done in, 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 when he speaks in this scripture, it says that the last thing he says is that, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, the Lord and Christ. So, so what were they supposed to do with that? The next scripture said that they were cut to the heart. I mean, there's many things that we do that are wrong in this life. But how do you deal with you killed God? So that we can understand this, I'll use another reference to the very same scripture, Psalms 110 and verse 1, that Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22 to 25. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so if you're a Christian, that's you, that's me. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So we, we, we are weak. I mean, we all can see that we have weaknesses. Sometimes our weakness is thinking that we're strong. And Cody made reference to that, you know, that you're busy in your life, you have your own gifts and so on. And maybe that's your issue, that you, you think you have control over what you do in your life. And maybe your issue is that you, you don't think that you're very competent. Maybe you feel when you maybe compare yourself to other people, I'm not that good or not that great. And actually both these perspectives are like two sides of the same coin. Both of them think that the solution is within your own power, where really what we're being called to understand is that the power that Jesus has inside of God is the same power he's giving to us as long as we can forget who we are and take upon ourselves this new identity that he gives us. And that now we're relating or he is relating for us where our place is in the universe, that we are made and created in God's own image and that he has restored that. And so that now through him, we can do what it is that the Bible uh, charges us to do. And I think all of us can relate to how uh, difficult that can be. I mean, we, we talk about, we reference what was happening at the time when Peter was talking to all these people, but even today, I mean, every single day, uh, we're all busy doing whatever we do and we can very easily forget what God's place is, what Jesus's place is in our lives. So my, my exhortation to all of us is to find ways in which we can regularly um, keep in connection with what we're supposed to be so that we start to manifest the power that God has given us. And Jesus has an expectation, the gifts of the spirit and of course the fruits of the spirit are what we should be manifesting. Even now, as we think about Corona, imagine if you had a prophetic word or somehow were able to heal. These are things I challenge myself with. And I'd like to just share with you that the Bible is full of the, 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 the advice for how to do this. Let's read our Bibles. Let's keep in the word. 
And let's truly believe what Jesus has done for us. I'll just end with a brief prayer. Lord Jesus, we see in this scripture an incredible thing, who you are and who God made you and who you have made us to be inside of you. And we just want to pray that your spirit can come and remind us regularly so that we can stand up, rise up to what it is that you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.